Welcome back to the Ball Studies Podcast, hosted by myself, Swalia, and my co-host, Monacy. Today, we're here with Emily. And Emily, if you could introduce yourself, that would be perfect. Hi, everyone. So happy to be here. My name is Emily Sabbath, and I am a writer and director and film artist currently in Los Angeles. Um, and I also work in the creative marketing space for entertainment marketing, uh, most recently in Netflix. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to dive into the intersection of my artistic career with commercial work with both of you. Yeah, we're really excited to dive deeper into sort of the intersection of, like you said, both your artistic and commercial work. Um, but we want to take it back quite a bit um, <laughs> to your undergraduate degree in theater and South Asian religions. Um, and I know as part of this, sort of around this time, you served as the film education outreach coordinator of the True False Documentary Film Festival in Missouri. Um, so for context, I think this um, festival showcases new documentaries and their directors like around the globe. And through your work, you piloted a program that worked with teachers at local high schools to match curriculum to feature documentaries within the festival. Um, I think this is really interesting, sort of the intersection of film and curriculum. Um, so I'm curious if you can elaborate more on how this experience um, shaped your perspective on integrating film as a part of curricular de curriculum development. Um, and yeah, I would just like love to hear more about this experience. Yeah, well, I know I have to like really step back in my mind, <laughs> but um yeah, it was really an incredible opportunity. The True Pulse Film Festival, which is now a really globally recognized film festival, showing really disruptive and innovative forms of documentaries, um, was just in its infancy. And I have been such a core member of sort of the film team there um, with True Pulse and in the community. So I just really was passionate about talking, going out to the local schools, talking with the teachers and the students, introducing, in a way, it's sort of like, it's funny, and now that I think about it, it's it's a little bit like what I do now, which is sort of a preview or something that gets people excited about a core message or idea or feeling that a film contains and sort of its potential. And so that's kind of the way I approached it. I would talk to the teachers in advance. I would let them know what films were coming, kind of, and then hear where they were at in their teaching, where they were at in their curriculum during the semester, and then go to the schools and introduce the films. And the teachers would have already had reading materials or something prepared to sort of match with that film, which was really awesome. And it got the students super motivated. We That year, it was a very successful pilot. Um, it then became a full-time position. Of course, I had left and, and gone off at that time, moved out of the state, but it became a full-time position. And the, I can't remember the exact percentage, but the increase in the number of students who attended the festival, who really attended events and were really became excited about the idea of documentary film just grew exponentially out of that program. Um, so that was, I was really proud of that and really just honored to be a part of of bringing that to the students I love that like as someone who has like more of a background in education I really love like hearing about like even the interaction with the students again hearing about how something like film um, and media can also be an educational experience uh, I just think it's like another way of like understanding um, and communicating information um, yes. and something else I also wanted to ask you was you've noted that an important segment and linking your undergraduate work uh, and beginning to direct uh, was doing your graduate um, Master of Fine Arts um, in Film and Multimedia Performance at Cal Arts, which is a very like experimentally like rigorous school. Um, so I want to hear more if you can speak more about the impact of this program uh, and how it sort of influenced you developing your skills in the direction of your career. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Really pivotal moment in my life. Um, for sure, taking off from undergrad, I took some time off and sort of invested in the Portland, Oregon um, experimental and performance art scene and, and learned more independent film there. And that was like, this is what I want to be doing for sure. And there was one place, there was only one school that I wanted to go to. There's one program. I was like, this is it. If I get in, I'll go that route. If I don't, I'll continue on this sort of, yeah, independent route. And um, I did. And I'd say CalArts just gave me the tools that I needed and expanded my mind and my heart really um, to the idea of what film could do, what it could be, the different forms of filmmaking um, from essay documentaries to experimental forms to more traditional narrative forms and how you could blend the, blend them. And I think most consequential, consequentially, excuse me, um, they're truly interdisciplinary. So it's a rare place where you really can work with the music school as a whole to um, just collaborate and the theater school, like where you can bring a theater student or a theater director into your process, or you can bring a composer into your process and work together to come up with a form that none of you could have done on your own. And I think, for example, when I make anything, I actually start with sound. And so it's been that way since I was a kid, I just didn't really know what I was doing. And CalArts helped me put a name and a form to the way I'd already been working and thinking about creativity and just deepen those skills and gave me a pretty rigorous skill set to go out into the world. Yeah. It's amazing to hear how this program like resonated so much with you and like helped you sort of identify those inherent skills and sort of paradigms on creativity you already had. And so it seemed like it was something that really enhanced sort of this feeling and these intuitions you already had, but kind of put a name to them and sort of be able to pursue them in a more tangible way. And that's like really, really interesting to hear because especially in the creative world, I think that again, like a lot of it is so feeling based. And so there, there isn't sort of a criteria to judge many different things. I feel like, um, you know, it's, there's no checklist, I guess, for what a successful film looks like. It is very much so about that sensory, holistic, cohesive experience and sort of being able to pursue that again, like in this, in this form is really beautiful to hear about. Um, I did want to kind of talk more about some of these different experiences that you had prior to um, serving as a video director for a collaboration between Amazon and U.S. Records. I know that you touched on this a little bit um, at Portland State University, where you were, um, I think, lecturing on video art and production to Korean foreign exchange students without a translator, which is really impressive. Um, and you're also teaching an intensive workshop on film and video production um, tailored for theater and new media video designers. Um, you're also, you know, delivering guest lectures on many different topics at the University of Missouri. Um, but you were doing a lot, a lot of different <laughs> interesting experiences. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, across the country as well. So I'm curious if you can dive deeper into what some of these experiences looked like and maybe if there were any sort of like transferable skills that you gained from these experiences that um, maybe have resonated with you, stuck with you throughout your career. Yeah, it's a great question. So, so much of my career has been um, sort of parallel tracks or things happen happening concurrently. So all of those, pretty much all of those opportunities came while I was in graduate school. So over the summer, I would take that opportunity to go to Portland State or right after I graduated from CalArts, I got the opportunity to be the artist in residence at the University of Missouri. Um, 
And so I just was very much, it was very much a holistic ecosystem of both still learning myself and then starting to share what I was learning simultaneously, which is a beautiful way to, you know, hone your skills, find your voice and your truth when you're talking about what you do and who you are. And also I would say one of the biggest things was talking to lots of different kinds of students and people about what these different forms could be for them um, and reacting and responding to what they were finding interesting in it and got letting help letting them help guide the experience they were having. And I would say that led to what I talk about a lot now in my career and use all the time is something I call radical collaboration, which is really just is exactly that, which is I'm listening, I'm hearing, I'm responding. And I'm then curating and pulling all that together to guide us somewhere. Um, and I think like bringing individual strengths into a process, even into a teaching and learning environment um, where, you know, you're sort of the, the guided captain, if you will, like, you know, where you want everyone to go, but you're really taking in these different perspectives and it's, it's a sort of morphing cool organism as you're going together, um, which is a very, you know, sort of fluid and artistic way to talk about it, but yeah, I hope that makes some sense. No, that definitely makes like a lot of sense. I, again, I like really liked hearing that transition. Um, and before we ask more questions about your commercial career, I want to dive deeper into two major tracks that you built parallel, mm. your commercial work and your artistic film practice, both of which have intersected um, throughout your career. Uh, you've mentioned that your artistic film practice uh, as one that tells women's tales um, mm. and that you revel in creating films that intersect this like sort of like dark poetry of the natural world with dangerous complexities of white womanhood. Can you mm -hmm. speak more about this theme that you've pursued throughout your artistic film practice and some of the films you've worked on in this space and how this practice has also interested um, and sort of bled into your commercial career? Yeah, great question. Thank you. Um, I I know I'm, I mentioned this when I sent it over, but I grew up in Southern Missouri, deep Southern Missouri in the Ozarks. Um, there is that show Ozark. I literally grew up in the place where it's set. <laughs> um, and that's a very dramatized version of it, but there's a lot of truth there. Um, so I grew up in a very rural area. Um, I really didn't have a lot of diversity. It was a very intense place. And it, like I said, fairly contradictory. Like it's, there were a lot of extremes, like um, extreme beauty of the natural world. I, I grew up on a farm um, to sort of a lot of, you know, poverty and sort of lack of opportunity, I, I would say around me as well. And so I really was formed in that space and through that started to really come up and have a deep appreciation for natural beauty wherever I ended up being in the world. And um, yeah, I think like the women's tales, it's always, even as a young student, I would look at textbooks and be like, where, well, where are all the women in this anecdote? Where are all the women in this story? Or where are all the capital O others. Like, I don't, I feel unseen. Um, and as I obviously learned more, you know, especially in college and broadened my horizons and was out in the world more and understood more of my own privilege as the way I walk through the world as a white presenting human woman, I 
was taking all of that in, but still felt the otherness. Um, and so I've always been seeking those tales. Whose story is not being told? Why? Well, I think we know why. Um, how do we use soft power to subvert the patriarchy in storytelling? Um, and so these were questions I started asking myself in my as my as a teenager, and then it just kind of kept going from there. And all through my art practice, I've been, always been interested in like the person's perspective just right outside the main action. Like so, a lot of my films will take the perspective of a woman who is just outside of what we would consider the main action and like what's her POV what does she have to share with us um one of my biggest films while the tree sleep is inspired by historical event and it really tells the tale of two women um a white activist from Detroit based on a true individual from 1965 who drives down to the Selma marches um, and is murdered by the KKK for riding in the car with a, a young black activist and he survived. And so we're, we're getting some of her journey. Um, she's pretty much been erased from history and that was on purpose um, through the FBI and through the media. And that helped really form a lot of my storytelling after that learning this story. And then we're also meeting a woman who's married to the KKK and FBI undercover informant in that film. And, and those two women kind of bookend this film experience. And I'm so interested in these perspectives that we don't hear very often, especially around historical events and how they are applicable now, what they have to tell us now, why it matters. Um, yeah, so sorry, I could go on and on clearly, but... Um, I, it does intersect into my commercial work finally, because again, always in the room from the very start of my career and all obviously through grad school, it's like, mm, whose voice is missing here? Um, and just little subtle things. Like I will say most of the editors, for example, I've worked with have been male and most of them have been white and there's subtle bias everywhere. Like we all have it. And so sometimes, for example, I'll be looking at a cut, let's say of a trailer or some other piece of video. And there might be, there's certain shots that are chosen, right? And it's like, hmm, maybe can we go back through, let's go back through the film or whatever, the commercial, and let's let's find just a different quick shot where that's featuring someone else, a different face. Um, let's, let's just try to bring as many voices into this as we can that are helping to round out the story. So it, from the very beginning all the way through, it's it's a foundation. That is like such a beautiful answer. There's so much I can comment on in that. But I love sort of how you talked about exploring using soft power and just that idea that there's all of these sort of stories that, again, like are sort of hidden, kind of buried and um, thinking about how we can sort of resurface these stories and think about how they're relevant now. Um, there's like this quote that I really like by Maria Popova, who's like a writer that I really enjoy. And she kind of says like history is not what actually happened, but what survives the shipwrecks of judgment. Um, and I think that's very true and very relevant that. to what you're talking about. Um, and so I think about that a lot when it comes to telling stories and the stories that we interact with on a daily basis is, um, there's so much that we don't hear and there's so many shipwrecks that we don't hear about. And I think that the work that you're doing and sort of bringing those to light is really wonderful. Um, and 
again, like there's so much you mentioned in that that I want to dive deeper into sort of later in this episode as well, but um, sort of like going in chronological order, I guess. Um, Would love to talk more about your work. Um, You directed an Amazon exclusive music video for artist Sarah Watkins and New West Records that was actually featured in Rolling Stone, um, which is super cool. Um, So I'm curious, like how sort of, I know before this, you were kind of you know, pursuing your master's degree, working on some of these different projects, um, teaching, guest lecturing, all of these things. So how did you go from, you know, teaching film, performance, video art, to directing such a large scale partnership? Um, So curious if you can speak more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I got that opportunity. So I had graduated. I was a visiting artist. I had several projects, including the short film I mentioned, while the trees sleep. And then I had a multimedia project. Both of those started to get some traction and buzz and were featured in different sort of celebrated areas. Um, Isla was, is a multimedia performance piece. It got invited to the Sundance New Front, invited to apply to the Sundance New Frontier program in the, you know, early 2000 or early aughts. Um, And I felt like there was just a little bit of buzz around the work I was making and the way I was approaching it. And then I, returned to LA. I had left for a little while after my grad program and I returned to LA and I just reconnected with people from Calar's incredible artists who, some of which, um, who were working as music video directors or partnering directly with, you know, Warner Music and these other um, record companies. And they just knew my work. Um, and so again, it really had come from just a lot of hustle of just making a lot of work over time and um, staying in contact with actually with, you know, I have a large network um, and there was a lovely woman who is an incredible video director herself who brought me in. I actually directed a a music video for Sarah Watkins prior to that, um, that she brought me in for, and then that one did very well for them. And then um, they had this opportunity with Amazon and brought me back because Sarah we had such a great connection, my, the artist Sarah Watkins and I, on her first video that I did for her. And she really appreciated the POV that I brought and the aesthetic that we brought to the video on a very low budget um, that she wanted to work with me again, which was great. Although I did bid on it. I mean, meaning that I put together a treatment and presented my ideas, et cetera, as you would traditionally. And um, she wanted to to pursue that route. And so it it was a big leap. I was working um, already at Trailer Park at that time, which I know we'll get into, which is a, a very large entertainment marketing agency in Los Angeles. So I also had that kind of helping to inform me how to how to navigate a process with such a, a large entity um, as Amazon Music, um, yeah, and New West Records. Yeah, I know. Also, following um, your work in teaching. Um, you worked as an entertainment coordinator at Trailer Park, eventually working your way up to associate producer, um, producer, and then creative director of brand and entertainment audio and video. Can mm-hmm. you elaborate more on the evolution of your role at Trailer Park and how it led a way for you to work on some of your monumental collaborations, such as companies, um, which includes companies like Lay's, Intel, National Geographic? Yeah, for sure. Um that was my trailer park was my first sort of introduction into the commercial, certainly the uh, marketing world. I really didn't have much experience um, in that world before that, but the foundation of 
from CalArts and from all my previous work of understanding storytelling, understanding film production and post-production, um, having kind of a strong POV myself, it was a pretty natural fit. And frankly, you know, we I love to be open and frank about um, the economics of, of life, right? Like I do not come from any sort of financial privilege whatsoever. I have I still have massive amounts of student loan debt from my under from my graduate education, and at that time, you know, um, as I was starting my career, I was already had a lot of debt, and I know this is something many people can relate to. So, um, I really needed a job that paid well and that I could grow through. I couldn't, I guess, what I'm trying. I couldn't just be an artist in LA the way that I would have loved to have been, you know. But it worked out pretty well because both things feed each other. So yes, I started as a coordinator. Um, briefly, that's sort of basically an entry-level position. Um, you are working with producers, you're working with creative directors, you're working, um, you're scheduling, you're attending meetings, you're, you know, learning how to work with editors and talk about creative ideas. Some of So some of those things actually I already knew how to do, but I started to understand the process and I did move quickly in a way, like over the course of nearly five years, I um, became a producer and started producing for, yes, pretty big clients, Lays and Intel. And part of the way that I got that opportunity, those opportunities within this business was that, again, using my storytelling skills, using my approach of sort of finding the emotion and understanding how we wanted the audiences to feel like, even if it's for like, how does Microsoft, for example, the brand, how did they want their audience to feel? That's the way I think about it when, when I'm approaching something. So really taking those ideas of <laughs> sometimes experimental or a tour or narrative filmmaking and applying them to the commercial world really has served me well in my career. And so I advanced through all um, and ended my time at Trailer Park as a creative director um, and put together a campaign for Lays and National Geographic and um, yeah, all based in that foundation of, of sort of genuine, sort of innovative and disruptive storytelling practices that the brands really wanted. And in general, I'd say most brands, especially now, and this was, you know, years ago now, especially everybody wants a cinematic treatment of whatever they've got. And we've all, as consumers, we have become really, um, really astute and educated cons film consumers, right? So we just understand media at a very particular level and we expect every brand, no matter what it is, to meet us at that place if they want to be successful in their commercial or in, for example, a branded documentary series, for Microsoft, right? That's that was one of the one of the big pieces that I did for them that was really successful. Um, you have to know that language and understand audiences in order to be successful. Yeah, that's that's an amazing perspective. I think what you were saying just about like disruptive storytelling is really interesting and how even just like people's knowledge now and expectations are really high because we've yes. seen so many of this in you know recent years that we expect a certain caliber of not only like um, just storytelling, but sort of the cohesive, like cinematic effects, all those things that you're talking about. And I think technology definitely has kept up with sort of those needs of people. I'm sure they've 
you know, influence each other in different ways of us being able to create more and more, again, like like you said, probably cinematic and disruptive methods mm-hmm. of storytelling through technology. Um, I'm not sure, again, like how deeply you can talk about each of these collaborations, but I think like in terms of just like general maybe patterns, I would love to hear more about kind of uh, the types of stakeholders that you're interacting with in these large scale collaborations, mm-hmm. um, both on the production side, but also the people and the brands that you're working with. So, you know, I'm sure that there's kind of um, maybe people who are acting as like a translator. And I'm not sure like if this was your role as well between kind of the brand's needs and Trailer Park's expertise and talent. So what was sort of like, um, like, I don't know, how 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 was that bridge sort of built, I guess? And like, who was who were the actors in building that bridge? That's a great question. In general, there's a pretty big team that is working at any one time on a campaign, um, any type of campaign. In that particular, in those particular instances, I would often act as a liaison between the brand's needs and our cap- and trailer park's capabilities. So, um, and I would present our creative, our sort of custom creative, some of which I ideated, some of which you know. It just depends on, you know, as a creative director, sometimes it's my job to curate. Sometimes it's my job to ideate and come up with the idea myself. And so or a combination of all of the above. So yes, on the brand side, it's the same with the studios because this, you know, entertainment studios, because they are also a brand. Um, you will have someone who's sort of the custodian of the brand. They are the brand gatekeeper. So for example, I can say like with Lay's, which is what something we would call a legacy brand. They've been around a super long time. They have a very distinctive brand and it is, you know, we might get what we call like a brand Bible or a brand book that is given to us on the agency saying, this is the colors you can use. You can't use any other colors but these colors, for example. So you have constraints as a creative when you're working with these giant brands and and same with like franchises. If you think of film franchises, um, there are many constraints. I personally, some I personally love that because once you see where the constraints are, once that box is formed, or they're like, you have to have this font and we use this color and it needs this, this, and this. You have to eat a chip this way, which was a very real thing in the lace commercial. Um, they had someone come to set and teach the talent how to eat a chip. Those constraints provide fuel and spark for true creativity. Because though you you you're kind of put in a box and you have to think your way out of it or feel your way out of it and present something really exciting that that can exist within those configurations. So I in particular really love that. Um, some people don't like working with brands like that. They find it very restrictive. It can be, and sometimes at the very end of the process, you're in the edit bay, you're showing the client. Part of my job also was presenting you know here's here's this cut here's this poster here's here's where we're at here's what it looks like sometimes you'd have other stakeholders coming in saying oh that's great but you know we actually need to do this or it's really clear it's really important that the messaging says this now so you have to be able to pivot constantly pivot and refine and the hope is that the message doesn't get watered down or that you're creative that you're really excited about that the client was really excited about still comes through you know, to varying degrees of success, I think. And the audiences or the consumers are kind of the judge of that. Um, But the most successful are a really beautiful collaboration and intersection between the brand needs and the creative ideation and spark that's coming from the agency. 
I find it so interesting to hear about your creative experience um, with working with larger brands and how constraints can actually sort of allow for a different type of like sort of like creative expression, like different type of project. I find that really interesting to hear about because um, I think most of the time I hear about artists more in like the freelance realm, like when you have total autonomy over work, what you work on. But I think it's mm-hmm. also interesting to hear about how you can still um, express yourself creative, creatively, even with constraints, even with working in a space where you have to sort of meet the brand's needs instead of uh, highlighting your own individual expression in a way. But I just yeah. think it's cool to see how it can take on like different forms. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I will say briefly, like um, there are so many ways that you can sort of subvert that environment as an artist. And I, I think that is a space that, um, yeah, where I felt some freedom. And for example, for Lays, I actually pitched them a musical, like a short musical. It was a broadcast commercial, many would be on TV, um, way outside of their comfort zone. But you know, that idea, we even made like an animatic, which is, um, for your listeners is, is basically like a sort of an animated version of what the commercial could look like, um, with the song, which I, I can't name. Um, but, uh, showing like it could be like this and it got really far up the chain at least they really loved it and at the end they took a safer route but that's okay because it really sparked conversation um and the pro the thing that we made at the end we're still able to use really cool techniques for example a single shot like I was like what if this were all just in one shot now that's coming from that's purely from filmmaking language right like that's coming from that experience so you can you can find freedom in these spaces that many people consider restrictive, traditional, conservative. Those It does exist, but you can find ways to find a spark there. Wow, I love that you brought that up. I feel like that's so, <laughs> so relevant right now, especially yeah. even like how much of a hit like Barbie was. Like I think yeah. that like point that you made with like, it's out of the comfort zone of maybe people who are like higher up in like, um, the brand or like the company um, I think Barbie was a really strong example of that I know I watched an interview of like Margot Robbie and like mm-hmm. Greta Gerwig talking about how they sort of like worked with Mattel like basically there was like they had like a million problems with like the movie script but they like <laughs> managed to like find a way to like still like pitch for the movie and like um, allow it to like sort of like go through and I think that like uh, just a theme of uh, the brand might be like uncomfortable with it, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't like pitch. It doesn't mean you shouldn't like push for it. Like you never know what could end up happening. You never know like who might like advocate for it or be on board. So I find that really interesting. Um, oh, yeah. totally. That's such a great example. That's exactly it. That's exactly right. That was a really inspiring collaboration. And oh my gosh, Greta did an incredible job with that. And she was so great at holding the vision and staying strong in the specificity of her vision while also being flexible to some of the brand needs and, and yeah, basically bringing them into her vision and saying, it Barbie can be this, and it's also feminist. Hello. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's great. I love it that you brought that up. Yeah. I love hearing your take too, as someone who's like <laughs> in the film industry, that's like super cool to hear. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you can transition into some other aspects of your work as well. I know in 2019, you also served as the video creative lead for world premiere of the opera uh, Magdalene uh, at the Prototype Festival in New York City, which is given special recognition in the Wall Street Journal Review and was also featured in the New York Times. Can you elaborate more on your experience serving as a video creative lead for an opera and how the different ways like this experience would have differed from other products you've done or collaborations that you've done in the past. 
Oh yeah. I'm, I love it that you sort of cherry picked this out of my resume and, and work. This is, was a beautiful collaboration, very special to me. Um, I had already had a kind of a relationship with the uh, sort of historical figure of Mary Magdalene. I was always very interested in her. I'm, I'm, I didn't really grow up Christian, but I knew of her as a figure and was always intrigued by her. Like um, she, again, like back to earlier part of our conversation, she was an outsider. Like, I'm like, oh, this woman, this woman's really interesting. She really broke the mold. Um, she had a full story in the Gnostic gospels, um, which were sort of gospel parts of the Bible that were not included in what we would call the final cut. Um, and I was always fascinated by that as a teenage teenager looking for like rebellious women in myth and around the world and in history. So when this project came to me um, from from the brilliant um, uh, Zoe um, and uh, Zoe Ajamor, incredible director, and and um, and Daniela, um, who's an incredible artist, I was just so it was so perfect. Um, they really wanted um, to work with someone who was connected to the material and also who had a specific cinematic sensibility. So often in opera, like scenic design and video design, um, and also in just in theatrical design, the, the video can be sometimes treated um, you know, like another scenic element, which it is, but that means it can be like kind of um, cut up or projected in different ways, or maybe they really zoom it in. And um, they were very interested in the idea of like a very large scale, full frame experience. And um, I fully embraced this material there. The opera really has to do with Mary, the idea of Mary Magdalene as a, as a human woman, um, very much having her own experience and in her own right. And I was so drawn to the poems of Marie Howe and sort of women's sexuality and identity, um, not even related to having a partner, but just uh, again, of her own. And I got to use skills that I, the things that I love the most about making um, video work and, and creating moving images, which has to do with emotion, uh, the emotional aesthetic and texture and movement and also the sort of sacredness of a banal space. So like, what does it mean to frame a domestic space in a way that makes us feel that there's some sort of deep, there's something deeply, for lack of a better word, spiritual in this space or what, what is it, how can you frame a, a domestic space in a way that, that makes us feel something? Um, and so they were interested in these ideas as well. And I pretty much got to do exactly, to, to realize the vision that I had in my mind it was a beautiful collaboration. And it used, to, to wrap up here, it used all the skills that I had learned at, at CalArts. And you know I had made my own multimedia video piece of three channels and worked with, I'd already worked with composers. I'd worked with live artists. I've worked in the theater space. You know, we don't have time to go into my whole history, but I grew up in the theater and you know community theater i understand theater processes so it's a really cool collaboration bring together all these different strands of things that i do and into like a beautifully realized um experience that's such a wonderful sort of deep dive into what this experience <laughs> meant for you and 
Um, I really liked what you were saying about sort of framing this story, like, you know, very sort of domestic story, very spiritual story in a way that can kind of appeal to a larger range of audiences. Like, what are these sort of maybe elements that you could sort of bring out? Um, And I, I just think that's like super fascinating and hearing about sort of how you even resonated with that sort of theatrical experience and theater as a whole is really wonderful to hear. Um, and I know that the opera was, you know, described as a kaleidoscope of expression, which, mm-hmm. you know, you also sort of touched on. Um, I think that the opera was also um, created by, you know, two women, had poetry from a woman and also had music from 14 female composers. So very sort of female centric team that was, you know, bringing this to life, working on it. Um, it seems like I'm curious, like, um maybe how the team that you worked on for this project was different from other groups you worked and worked with in the past um and also like outside of this project if there are any sort of teams that you worked with on different projects that maybe were sort of really monumental to you or just like Mm -hmm. stood out to you yeah I mean then this gets right at like obviously my love of women's tales and working with women and like a really um global group of women like those composers were from all over and they were incredible and um i'm hesitant to put any sort of gender like expression around the process itself um like i'm not going to say it was a more better because it was a quote-unquote female process but just in the numbers and it's true that especially in film, although it has gotten much better, I generally work primarily with men if I'm put into a situation. And in the theater as well, many of those roles, um, it has it is changing, but video designers and the composers especially are mostly men um, and have created beautiful works. Um, however, it was just electric honestly to work with these women who are at the top of their game who are like just all of us coming together it was a true force um I think that as a premiere it it really shocked I think a lot of people that it got as much press as it did and that it was just so beautifully realized um and it reinforced what I had been sort of on a smaller scale trying to do both in my own projects and even again, like in these big institutions that they sometimes say, well, here's your editor, here's your team. This is what it looks like. And being like, well, do I have any say in who I can hire for this? Because for this project, I actually want to look, um, you know, I want to work with this cinematographer and yeah, it's a woman or this person, like this non-binary director I want to bring in on this project, like, et cetera. You always have, you I really think it's important to look for the places where you have a choice because when you have a choice, you have power. And when you have power, you have impact. And I think that like, there's always little places we can find that. And especially when we're starting to work in these big institutions, like I said, or in these big projects, you might think, no, I just have to deal with what they say I can have. But um, as you grow in your career, you'll see like you can make some of those choices and they can have huge ripple effects. Um, And so it just inspired me to keep doing what I had been doing, which is trying to bring again, more voices in and both in front of and behind the camera on my own projects and in the writer's rooms and in the creative rooms, I mean, um, of them, of the marketing world as well. 
Yeah, that's like super interesting to like hear about um, and like that particular experience as well. Um, something else I also wanted to hear more about was um, following your work at the Trailer Park Group and serving as a video creative lead. Um, you also joined Netflix as a creative director of the product creative studio and eventually became the creative strategist of series and the product creative studio, mm-hmm. if I got that off. Um, yeah, it's a, I know, it's a mouthful. Yeah. yeah. Can you elaborate more on what your role at Netflix looked like and walk yeah. us through some of the projects that you worked on? Sure, totally. Um, yeah, it was a pretty big leap in some ways um, from Trailer Park to Netflix. Um, uh, what we would call going from agency side, Trailer Park is an agency that works with studios like Netflix going to the client side, right? The client used to be Netflix or the studio side. So um, it was really great to be able to, to jump sort of to the other side and um, get that experience. Um, I came in right away. I was making, um, doing creative work on their social channels at Netflix um, and working on Never Have I Ever, just, I mean, a ton of amazing shows and starting to see how the marketing voice worked at Netflix, um, which was really cool to come in on the social side because I really hadn't done much of that. Like I had been doing, you know, big digital campaigns, more traditional campaigns. And so to get into the nitty gritty a little bit was really exciting. And then from there, sort of just, um, progress to different teams within the creative studio. And, and to, I do want to clarify that there are multiple creative directors and sort of senior creative producers as a term, as a title that they use there. Um, so I wasn't the only one. Um, there were, there are as a team of us. Um, and we were essentially, in that, in that role, we were really partnering with marketing and with strategy, which kind of deals with a lot of the product, the Netflix product that that you interface with, um, to bring those ideas to life. So, for example, on a show, let's just use Never Ever. They, the marketing team might come to us and the creative studio and say, "Guys, for this season, we're thinking." We talked to the showrunners, we talked to the writers, we talked to everybody who needs to weigh in, and we're all thinking we want something that maybe is like this. We kind of want to go in this direction. So sometimes our job would be say, okay, sometimes it's kind of broad. So we would narrow it down and we would come up with specific ideas, meaning specific um, trailers, teasers, social media ideas, et cetera, and take it back to the team internally and say, what about this? We could, we could do this, or we could make a custom animation, or we could make this, and um, maybe we could use this line of copy, et cetera, et cetera. And then it kind of goes through a process and you know, get swiddled down and narrowed down. And then we would physically make those things in house. And my role was to guide the overall creative process to uphold the high creative excellence standards of Netflix to keep to, again, kind of talk about what, what God was doing, like hold that creative vision. What's that, what's that key? What's the kernel that we're, we've got to go back to? What's the highest vision we have for this piece? And one thing that Netflix does is even on a small piece, it could just be a social media piece, it could be very short. Um, we're still holding it to a very exacting um, standard and we're still applying those really exacting um, yeah, standards across any type of piece um, to give that creative, holistic creative experience um, to a viewer. So um, yeah, I hope that's helpful. <laughs> no, that was definitely helpful. I feel like I got a like pretty like strong understanding of sort of 
some strategies that Netflix might use for marketing and sort of mm-hmm. like your role as well. I do have to say, me and Monsieur are never have I ever fans. Uh, we did finish Yay! this series. I actually <laughs> cried watching the last episode. It was, it was really nice. Um, but I was going to say the thing that was interesting about Never Have I Ever was um, not only obviously like it's like diverse representation, but also like how vivid it was, how colorful it was. Yes. I feel like every trailer was like sort of meant to be just as like energetic and like chaotic as like Davy was as a character. Yes. So I find that interesting, like how that process sort of works. And I feel like mm-hmm. trailers are also really iconic sometimes too like i don't like the comments always like go crazy over like new trailers that are dropped mm-hmm. but always like look forward to them so i'm sort of curious to hear like what does that mean for somebody who's like sort of designing trailers like what does it mean to sort of like create hype or like is that the end goal like what is the end goal for a trailer end up being oh i love that that's a really great question um well certainly like the business side right the business side of netflix and even for the filmmakers is clearly to drive viewership right like that's the end goal, drive viewership that people are going to mark when that's coming out and they're going to, they're going to watch it the first week or, you know, et cetera, and drive those viewership numbers. But I would say it's when you're crafting a trailer, you're really, that's one piece of a very large campaign and all the pieces sort of build upon each other to create um, a mood and a feeling and just generate excitement some you know give some information so we generally talking about like a, a creative video suite we create um, a date announce which is exactly like it sounds it's really brief right and it, it totally will match the vibe of the show also sometimes it might pull out something from the show that you hadn't thought about yet or like oh this season's gonna be darker or this season's gonna whoa like I'm feeling they're bringing out this color palette or they're, ooh, they're using like some different animation here. So we'll announce the date, usually using a piece of video art and also of course, you know, static art. Um, and then we have a teaser trailer, which is exactly like it sounds. And in that, we're sometimes introducing a new character um, that gets you pretty hyped, right? You're like, oh my gosh, like so-and-so is going to be in this, especially if it's a celebrity or we show a very pivotal moment um, from the season um, that it doesn't give anything away, but it does get you pretty hyped. And then you have your trailer and your trailer is much longer than your teaser generally. And it's giving you kind of a little bit of an outline and leaving you wanting more, of course. Um, I approach all those things generally from um, emotion first. How do we want people to feel? Um, what's going to d- delight and excite them and surprise them? Um I don't really use any trickery. Like some people like, oh, like let's, let's, you know, confuse them. No, I, I think I really come from a, a place of like, what's the deep emotion of this show and whatever it is, comedy. I worked on Seinfeld when, when Netflix acquired Seinfeld, um, you know, marketing was like, how do we, how do we introduce Seinfeld to like Netflix and to a whole new generation of people who've never even don't really know about Seinfeld or maybe would never watch Seinfeld. And one of the ideas that came out um, sort of through our process and that I really championed was the idea of introducing each Seinfeld character as an archetype. So you kind of, you know, you like you have your clown and this and that, like there, there are different archetypes and people can relate to that. How would you introduce each character if you were meeting them for the first time? And that's basically the structure of that Seinfeld trailer. Um, and it was very successful for them. And I think the same with Ozark. Ozark you know, a show that is in its final season, 
we knew that we could really push it, right? You can push, you already have an audience for this show and you want to bring in new viewers as well. You want to encourage people to go back and watch the first season, et cetera, et cetera. So for Ozark, it was really about a truly disruptive form and working with the idea of things going in reverse and how memory works and how memory is really flashes and how often memory is just an emotion. And so again, starting with working on that piece in particular, which won a very large award um, called the Clio Grand, which is a global marketing award for excellence in um, entertainment marketing. Um, that piece in particular we worked very closely with the sound designer and the editor. So it was really, and copy copywriter. So four of us just dove in deep on that and, and really went very far, I think outside of what the normal teaser is, but we knew that Ozark um, as a story could handle it and that the form um, matched the sort of rigorous writing of the show and could take viewers. I mean, basically when I, I'll wrap up here, but when I was talking to the team about how I was sort of experiencing it in my mind before we were making it, I thought I was like, I just, I almost want people to be holding their breath the whole time. And what does that feel like? What, it, what, how can we create that feeling? Um, and so anyway, that, that's sort of a little bit of a, an insider glimpse of the creative process um, for making trailers with Netflix. That was so, so cool to hear about. <laughs> I love how you talked about all of the different projects you worked on because I was hoping you'd bring them up. I wanted to bring them up as well. And I think that you really like gave us a perspective into each of the different strategies that were kind of used in these different projects you worked on and how you were thinking about them in a very singular lenses, right? Like there wasn't any sort of formula that you were following to make the perfect trailer. Like there's no, no sort of iMovie edit of what that looks like. <laughs> um, so thinking about how, you know, for example, with Seinfeld, it was like a character first perspective mm -hmm. of how do you sort of create familiarity and bonding with the characters versus for Ozark, it was about sort of the, like, like you were saying, you're working with the sound designer, sort of that sensory experience mm -hmm. of, something really really powerful that again like matched the rigor of what that season was and I think even just what you were saying about how there's kind of a different sort of emotion first strategy even though like the maybe strategy is emotion first but the way in which you think about emotion and um cultivating like the right emotion in each trailer like looks different so that's like yeah. so interesting to hear about something I've never really really thought about and I also appreciate that you touched on kind of the different stakeholders that you work with throughout this process. You know, there's different sort of sensory experts and people sort of on the marketing side of things right. that even with these trailers that you're, you know, collaborating with. So it's cool to hear how you're, you know, I think another theme of your career has also been acting as a liaison, not just between people and, you know, creatives, but also between um just like creatives themselves, if that makes sense, like brands and creatives, creatives and people. It feels mm -hmm. like there's just been a lot of bridge making in your career, which is super interesting to hear about. But I think this is a perfect place to wrap up the episode. I learned so much. I really appreciate just the depth of your answers. Um, and yeah, it was just like a really, really beautiful podcast episode. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much for this episode. I really enjoyed like hearing your perspective and getting to know some like behind the scenes type 
behind like some like really major like shows but also just like sort of understanding the mind of somebody who's like a producer who is like more in like the film industry yeah thank you so much thank you both like as a creative and as a creative director and doing both of those paths simultaneously over my career and it's just been such a joy to talk, be able to talk to you both. And thank you for your rigorous research, your thoughtful questions. You really inspired me to, to think about what I do, the impact that I have, and all the people that come together that I get to work with and make these things possible. So thank you both so much. I can't wait to, mm-hmm. to hear how everything goes. And best of luck to you as you head off in your new chapters. I want to hear more. Thank you.